and welcome to the Yellow Chair Collective. We are a psychotherapy practice based in Los Angeles. My name is Jack Lamb, and I use they, them, or he, him pronouns. I'm the outreach coordinator and an associate therapist here at Yellow Chair. So today we have with us a very, very special guest to talk about conflicts in relationships. We have Dr. Ken Fong. Dr. Ken Fong served as the senior pastor of the Evergreen Baptist Church of LA from 1996 till 2017, and he retired to devote all of his energies to his show, Asian America, the Ken Fong podcast. He's made it a goal for 2022 to focus on the mental health of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So needless to say, we're super excited to have you here. We were just talking a little bit and Dr. Fong has informed me that your podcast, you're seeing it in rank, I think, number 44. Yeah, we have a 44 ranking, but a 1.5% audience connection. So most podcasts, I was told 80% of the podcasts get less than 100 listens. So, you know, we get like 1,000, 1,500. So, that's amazing. Yeah, we're on our way. Thank you. Thank you. We're on our way to (laughs) 560,000 total listens, but we've been doing this since 2015. That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, I really love the work. I think your highlighting of like different Asian American, I I like that you highlight artists and you highlight novelists, like singers as well, I think. And our supervisors Mm -hmm. have been on your podcast as well. That's right, (laughs) recently. So that's pretty awesome to see. I had, I guess, my first question. I know you've made it the focus of this year for your podcast to focus on mental health. I was wondering where that came about for you. Well, I'll say right off the top, Jack, that Obviously, every single episode this year, since we pump one out at least once a week, is not going to be about mental health. So anyone who tunes in is like, hey, you know, that was a rapper. <laughs> you know? It's like, well, they have mental health issues too. Yeah. That's true. Uh, right. But I would say several reasons for that. Deep and long-standing reason is I have been the beneficiary. My wife and I, as a couple, have been beneficiary of going to therapy. And so I have my own experience with that as being extremely helpful and positive. Actually, before I was senior pastor, I started at the same church in 1978. So I was there for 40 years. I directed so many people that would come to see me initially for pastoral counseling to go see a therapist. Because I think to have integrity as a pastor, you have to realize you're not a trained licensed therapist. And when I first started pastoring, a lot of people started coming to see me for counseling. And I started saying to my wife, gee, I must be a pretty good counselor. And my wife, in her own inimitable way, said, and you're free. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, you know, that's why I married. One of the reasons why I married her, she keeps me from having a big head. So I said, you know, that's true. Okay. So I think pastors and priests can serve as kind of a frontline entry to people eventually getting into formal therapy. But pastors and priests need to understand whatever training we got in seminary is not the same, not even close to being the same as doing actual therapy. And I think one huge difference that I learned over the years is pastors tend to give advice because people come like, what should I do? How do I stop sinning? You know, (laughs) what? And so, if we sat there like the typical therapist and said, well, well, let's talk about your relationship with your parents first, right? Because I mean, we realize we're not going to see them for six months. We don't have that kind of bandwidth. When I get ready to hand people off, usually people from within the church to a licensed therapist, I usually take pains to say, now understand 
what we've been doing is not therapy. Mm. What we've been doing is pastoral counseling. So sometimes we pray, sometimes we talk about Bible verses, but a lot of times I cut to the chase because I don't know how much time we're going to have. I may not, not even get to see him two times. So I said, look, you need to just stop cheating on your wife. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, something like that. Right. Right. So I tell them, look, when you're going to go see a therapist, and I highly, highly recommend this because this is a huge investment in your own health and well-being, let alone the people around you. They're trained not to do what I just did. They want you to become your own therapist. They want you to actually learn to listen to yourself, your body, your feelings, and their guides. They're not going to give you the answer. They're going to actually help you discover what you need to find. Yeah. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's how I saw it, Jack. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Absolutely. I think the distinction that you made between pastoral counseling and therapy is so important because I think a lot of the times I've heard people say like, oh, I don't need a therapist because I have this person in my life. Right, or, right. I'm know, a best friend. Right, exactly. <laughs> right, right, and I'm right. like, that's not necessarily the same thing because as you said, like a lot of the times in therapy, it's not about giving advice. It's more so about helping someone discover their own answers to yes. things and how to live the life that they want to lead. Yeah. And it takes a lot more time. It does. Right. It does. And so many people are in such a hurry. They just want the pain to go away. And so again, my wife's voice in my ear, it's like, <laughs> that's why they come talk to you because you seem to take the pain away. And I'm not discounting, believe me, 100%, you know, the value of pastoral counseling. It has its place. But I think one of the important places that pastoral or priestly counseling has is it gets someone used to going to talk to somebody else, mm. right? And hopefully experience some value in that experience. But then that not therapist <laughs> needs to hand them off. And so I had in the old days, there was no iPhones or, you know, I had a Rolodex of Asian American therapists that I trusted. And I would say, look, I think we're at the, the end of what I can do for you. Mm. And I think this is just scratching the surface. I hope that you will call this person. I know them. I trust them. Again, this is an investment. You can't think of this as, well, that's just how long is this going to take? How much is it going to cost me? The first thing you pack is your baggage. <laughs> okay. So, so you move to a new town. You start a new job. You get into a relationship. I was like, unless you look in that suitcase and you decide what is dead weight or what is toxic and what is actually life-giving and sort through it, you're going to take that wherever you go. Again, a therapist, and that's been my personal experience, a therapist yeah. is trained to help us do that sorting. I love that. I love everything you just said. I wish I could like cut that out into little pieces and just like <laughs> put it everywhere. So does that make sense? Why this year in particular, mm -hmm. I'm saying... There have been enough people like your supervisors and some other people that have come my way recently, psychiatrists at UCLA who are expert in addictions, so on and so forth, that I say, you know what? I'm kind of reading the handwriting on the wall. It's not like I've not had mental health professionals on before, but it's like, oh, now I think more than ever, we really need to kind of put this in front of ourselves. And the other way is not just bringing professionals on. It's like I'm lining up another podcaster who's had to live with chronic pain for years and years and years. Yeah. And so when I was listening to one of her episodes, I was thinking, I didn't know that before. And we were going to talk about why she started her podcast. But now I'm really curious 
as someone who's not a therapist, but someone who's lived with chronic pain, I want her to share her journey. Yeah. And I think that's part of why I have such reverence for your podcast is because as you said, mental health is not really just about professionals and what we offer, but you know, we sit with people one hour a week, maybe two at most, and they live with the struggles that they do, right? Like they have to be the ones who practice and they have to be the ones that make the change in their lives. That's really where most of the work is. Oh yeah. Not the one hour. Oh yeah. And I want to pivot back to kind of you and your work in pastoral counseling. I was wondering like how you came about being interested in pastoral counseling and what you've seen the most in your time. I think when a person becomes a pastor, you don't actually have the option of not doing any counseling. (laughs) So, so people assume now, and many churches are not mega churches. Mm -hmm. So they have one pastor right now, as other churches grow numerically, financially, Sometimes they'll have a pastor of counseling. Like in my case, I had an executive pastor whose primary job was like COO. So he ran the organization, but even he still carved out time to do pastoral counseling because I think, especially in historically Asian, Asian American churches, they tend to look at their pastors as part of your role is to go to for counsel. But then I think early on when I started my pastoral work, I was kind of faced with a dichotomy. So there are some people that are hugely, highly suspicious of psychology, okay, the soft science. And so they just want biblical counseling. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, okay? No. So, so the, the groups, especially the very conservative churches that use the term biblical counseling, they're almost promising the people that come to them, I will not do therapy because therapy is not of God. Mm. It's actually a secular trick. You know, right. Okay. So, so what I will do is I will use Bible verses and it's kind of like uh, the Bible is the Hallmark store where there's a verse for every occasion. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, oh, I love so, that. Right. So then people come in and, and they're like, oh, so, you know, unless you can give me Bible verse after Bible verse to tell me what to do, what God wants me to think and choose in this case, then it's not really biblically-based counseling. I was pretty convinced early on in my career as a pastor, Jack, that that's just crap, <laughs> right? Okay, I don't look, I've never looked at the Bible as the book of all answers, okay? So if my car's not running smoothly, I don't take it to someone who just has Bibles. I go to a mechanic, okay? <laughs> and he has, he's got the, the from the factory manual about my car, okay? Or when I go see new doctor for the first time. And then I don't see any diplomas on the wall for medical school. And then the doctor finally walks in the exam room. My first question is going to be, well, first of all, I appreciate your humility. Not all doctors are that way, but just out of curiosity, what qualifies you to be my doctor? Where did you go to medical school? And if they say the Bible, I went to Bible college and the Bible talks about head and eyes and hands and feet. And, and I tell conservative Christians all the time, I said, you're telling me with a straight face that you would let that person be your doctor. <laughs> I go, you wouldn't. And if you are going right. to let that person be your doctor, you're a fool. Okay. So I was already wired that way. So this whole idea, if someone came to me and it happened on rare occasion, because they were already coming to a church, I'm not that way. <laughs> so it's kind of a self-sorting thing. If they did come and say, well, unless you quote Bible verses to me and just pray with me, then I don't accept this as legitimate. Then I would say, you know, really, I can't be helpful to you. 
because we're just operating with two entirely different paradigms. I said, I believe that God uses all kinds of people to do healing. And having, again, gone through this myself and experienced healing, I would say it's, there's no doubt in my mind that God uses therapists and not necessarily even just a Christian therapist, because sometimes those Christian therapists are already hardwired to steer you in a certain direction according to their convictions and their, you know, their creeds and their dogma. And I go, again, as, as a lay person looking at therapy, I would say that's not good therapy. Yeah. So early on, that's when I position myself, if you will, that when people came to see me, we'd have a good conversation. And I'm not trying to steer it, even though they're looking for advice. And sometimes I would make them really uncomfortable by challenging some of their, you know, preset sort of ideas like, oh, is it God's will for me to go to Japan on missions, you know, for the next three years? I go, what else could it be? Right. Now, like, you're not supposed to ask that question. Uh, I was like, well, isn't God everywhere? Not just in Japan. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we do this whole kind of thing where, you know, I get this couple, since we're talking about a couple, a couple come to me and they're all one want to do uh, premarital counseling, yeah. which is, again, a huge role of pastors who officiate weddings. I would say, okay, uh, just out of curiosity, why did you want to get married? And then a lot of times they're like, oh, because it's God's will. Wow. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Okay. So, so <laughs> that's what I would say. I would say, Okay, again, humor me. I said, have either one of you been in a serious relationship before? Maybe even were engaged before and then broke it off. And they go, a lot of times, yeah. Okay, and I said, okay, was there ever a point in those previous relationships where you were saying the same thing? That the reason why we're going to get married and spend the rest of our earthly lives together is because God willed that. And they go, yeah. So I go, so you've been wrong before. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Right, right. So so I said, now, are you even going to invite that person to your wedding? Oh, no. I said, so isn't that interesting that a lot of times we forge God's signature because we don't want people to question our choices. So I said, can we put that aside? Because that's kind of a fairy tale thing. It's like, there's a lot of different people that you and I could be happily married to not just one individual, the rest, you know, somewhere in the world. I like, what a cruel game that would be. (laughs) I said, so let's talk about why, how you two got together and what it is that you find attractive in each other. And let's, let's just kind of build from there. And sometimes they would break up. Okay. And I would go, that's a good choice too. But I think sometimes people, especially within a church setting, there's so many cheerleaders on the side going, yay, get married, yay, that person, yay, you two knew each other since third grade Sunday school. And there's so many voices that until they kind of get away from all the cacophony, they can't really hear themselves. And I'm saying, look, let's put it this way. My belief in covenant marriage, a covenant relationship, so it's not just legally binding, it's sacredly binding. Once you make that covenant before God, then it's God's will for you two to get married. Now, we'll have another session when we talk about, so what happens if we, if we get divorced, right? <laughs> but I'm saying, okay, I, I don't think divorce is the end all. But I said, there is something from a Christian perspective where you form this covenant. I said, but you could be walking down the aisle on your wedding day and you haven't made that sacred vow and you could change your mind and you won't be out of God's will. I said, you'll be out of your parents' will. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I developed a a sort of approach over the many years where I would try to strip away all of this kind of mystical, starry-eyed, fairy tale, you know, fog 
and try to get them clear. And I would always require that they see a licensed therapist for four sessions of premarital counseling who I then would consult with before I met with them once. Wow. No, I think that's great. Honestly, I think in my perspective, right, someone who is non-Christian, more secular, I would say agnostic, part of my sometimes like concern or fear about my clients who might lean heavily on their religious community, which is one, you know, I understand why it's so important, especially in the Asian American community, because a lot of the times the church community is kind of where most uh, people of the same ethnicity or race are together. And that's where you find community. But my concern sometimes as a therapist is very much that, right? Like people who might practice biblical counseling and give advice that is very much adding to the cacophony that you mentioned, that pressure of I'm in this community and in order to stay in this community, in order to have this sense of belonging that I feel here, I I don't think I can choose differently. Right. There's this pressure to please your tribe. Yes. Because you've seen examples in other people's cases where they spoke out of turn, they made a choice that the tribe disapproved of, and they were excommunicated. And if you've grown up especially Korean and Chinese immigrants, if you've grown up completely encased in this tribal bubble, this is your whole social life. This is your basis for friendships, not even school. It's, you call all these grownups, auntie and uncle, right? All all this kind of stuff. The thought of being kicked out is so frightening that it brings about this passivity and this submissiveness, right? That I think, not in every case, but quite often, is very harmful mental health wise. One of the things that I really made a point of when I became senior pastor, my predecessor, he's naturally much more father figure and he goes with that, he, he likes that. And people really see him as this like stand in for God the father. So when our church went through a year of discernment where people were supposed to pray about and decide, are you gonna go with the previous senior pastor who's taking a bunch of people or are you gonna stay with Ken? I had people, Jack, who would come to me and say, you know, we did so much together. I like you. I like the way you think. But I'm telling you, you're not enough of a father figure for me. And so I'm going to go with the other person. Okay. And I was getting so fed up with that answer. I was telling my wife very humorously, but I I was saying, saying, I'm going to have a bumper sticker made and stick it on the back of my car, put it in the staff parking lot that says, I'm not your dad, so deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think think for a lot of Asian American Christians and pastors who kind of step into that father substitute role, especially since so many of us in our families of origin have issues with our actual fathers. So now we have this father who's also an unapproachable authority figure, but supposedly loves me like God says, you know, God loves me. Well, I made it a point when I became senior pastor, I said, if you're following our Christian doctrine here, you and I are brother and sister in Christ. The only father we have is God in heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a title. I have a role that sets me apart from most of you, but I have to steward that in light of the fact that I'm still your brother in Christ. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to abuse my role or authority I said, because when I go to heaven, you go to heaven. I'm just going to be your brother. You're just going to be my sister. So for some people, and this is my big blanket of mental health, what I was trying to do all those years. I said, you may kick and scream because you just want to be told what to do. And so the father will like you. But I want you to grow up to be my emotional peer. Wow. And everything I did as best as I could, Jack, 
I really tried to make that the culture of the church. So even when people kind of traditionally tried to push me into that father role, I go, no, 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 no. I could be wrong. You could disagree with me. You could call me on the carpet on something. Whereas in so many other churches, they're definitely afraid of doing that. And I said, no, 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 no. You're, you're hurting me too. If you take my peership away. So I said, our whole goal here is for children to grow into adults, responsible adults, not to keep them children forever in this hierarchical relationship with this father figure on earth. And that I would say is very rare in Asian Christian, I don't know about Buddhist, Asian Christian settings, but I've been on my own journey of mental health. And I'm like, that's not good for me. It's not good for you. So the, it was kind of self-selecting. So people yeah. would go, you know, if you go to Pastor Ken's church, he's going to make you think for yourself. He's going to make <laughs> you own your own choices and deal with the consequences. He's not going to tell you what to do. So people who didn't want that, which I have boundaries, I'm right. fine with that, right? If they didn't want that, then they went, there's so many other choices. But I found that for people who, even they, they, grew, up, they grew up with that, like me, they knew and they made them have gone to therapy. They knew in their gut that this is actually healthier. Yeah, no, I fully love that. I think that's a very, very powerful approach, especially in the community where outside, even outside of the religious context, right? For me, thinking about what you said, the hierarchical relationships are so prevalent in my own culture as a Chinese Malaysian person, thinking about filial piety, thinking oh, about yeah. siblings and how yeah. you're supposed to respect the elder and you know how that translates into power dynamics within the relationships. And I think you know, when I'm thinking about your role as a pastoral counselor, especially when it comes to relationships, I'm wondering, you've alluded a little bit to how you navigate these questions of like marriage and premarital counseling. I'm wondering, what are some common like challenges that you've seen in your experience that couples tend to come to you for? Not in any particular order, a generational difference. Okay. So if someone is born overseas and then marrying someone who's like second or third generation, especially third generation, you know, on paper, you both have Chinese Malaysian names, right? but it's like uh, this other person, the second person doesn't speak anything but English, but beyond language limitation, just doesn't know what it's like to grow up in Malaysia right. and, and to bring little Malaysia into a household in some suburb in America. So sometimes mm -hmm. just to kind of bring all of those differences out into the open, because a lot of times they're unspoken. I mean, my wife is third generation Japanese American from Hawaii. I'm third generation Chinese American from Sacramento. And on paper, we just look like Asian Americans. Okay. But once you put us together in a household, you know, I'll go, why, why did you just do that? Right. And, mm. you know, she would go, because that's the way it's supposed to be done. And I'm like, well, not how I grew up. Like, here's, <laughs> here's a funny example. Here's a funny example. For Japanese, I don't know just from Hawaii, but Japanese in general, when you go visit somebody, you have to bring them omiyage. You have to bring them some kind of gift. Okay. I know some Chinese people do that, but my experience has been, not every time, but my experience has been when I go visit someone, they have me leave with a gift. <laughs> You're right. Actually, that, right? that seems more common to me. Right. Too. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now you go on vacation as a married couple, me and my wife, and uh, because she's from Hawaii, we would go to, we go to Hawaii a lot. 
So I'm still thinking like a mainland Asian American person. Hawaii is this exotic place. You go on vacation. So you want to milk every moment you have. I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii. Well, yeah. well, the last three or four days of our seven, eight day vacation, my wife is at Long's drugstore buying gifts to bring back home to, to people. The person who covered her job while she was on vacation. Right? And I'm like, what, what are we doing shopping for presents? And she's like, you can't come home empty handed. I go, I do it all the time. <laughs> and she, I said, explain to me. So here we are. We're the same generation but she's from Hawaii. She's Japanese. I'm, you know, culturally Chinese. She says, it just looks bad when you have been away from work, enjoying yourself during this paid vacation. And this person has been covering your responsibilities for you to just come back and show back up and go to work. Like you have to show some. So I found that Japanese people are especially other oriented mm. in, in ways that many of us Chinese are not. But she told me, she says, if you're living in Japan and your house catches on fire because of an electrical problem and it burns down, if that was America, your neighbors typically show up with offerings of blankets and help and stuff. In Japan, the person whose house burned down actually goes and apologizes to their neighbors and brings them gifts. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> you know, and she says, because even though it wasn't your fault, who knows? that you could have prevented it. But the fact that your house burned to the ground put all your neighbor's houses at risk. Wow. You know, just having this conversation with you, Jack, uh, it's making me realize that even in our same generation, but different culture marriage, we've had to navigate finding the original reason for the tradition. Like, what is the value behind that? Yeah. Before we decide we're going to adopt it together or not. I like that. I, th- I think, as you said, it's sometimes unspoken and even just exploring. I hear you telling the story and of how these little things that are different right in the house where this thing is here and you're like, oh, it's not supposed to be there. But even tracing that back to how she grew up and right. where she comes from and how the values are there, thinking about what other people do, I feel I sense how much thought and how much conversing has to happen for you to kind of even understand that that's part of her mindset and how she thinks about kind of situations that yeah. you face. You maybe remember too, that we discovered that Chinese are naturally more confrontational than Japanese. So I don't know what happens when you grow up in Malaysia. <laughs> I, I would say Koreans are more confrontational by experience than Japanese. So I would ask her finally, I'm like, well, that person like, did you gave you bad service? Why did you tip them? Like, well, I would have called the manager over. And finally, as we, this is not in the, in the one instance, we peeled back the layers. She says, not only am I Japanese culture, albeit third generation, but I grew up on an island called Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So maybe the only gas station in the old days on your side of the island was owned by that person's uncle. Mm-hmm. So you can't afford to go around confronting everybody about every little thing. So the only way this works is if everyone is going out of their way to not offend. Yes. So when someone does offend, yes. you don't keep bringing it up. Whereas I said, Chinese giant landmass. <laughs> <laughs> right? We built the wall around our country and said, we don't care if you think we're ignorant and backwards. We're the, we're the center of the universe. Keep out. And it's like you can run into someone once and never see them again for the rest of your life. And so even the way the volume that Chinese languages are spoken compared to Japanese language, the amount of uh, silence 
between conversations, whether it's American or Chinese or Korean versus Japanese, very different. So I would say it's appreciating that all of these, these distinctives, there's reasons. Now, we may be at a point in our personal life, in, in our historic life as, as a population, where those reasons don't hold water anymore. But let's talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Versus always feeling like the other person is saying or doing something wrong. No, I love that because I think as you were talking about, we may be at a time or place where things don't hold as much water, as much reason anymore. I think a lot of people are not fully aware, at least, that of how much we do in our lives that are not reasonable, right. <laughs> are right. not based on pure logic, right? And we just take it for granted as the truth of our experience. But these, it sounds like, as you've talked about with relationships and conflict, and maybe sometimes it surfaces when you put them together, right. and <laughs> you see that kind of physically manifesting. Right. So you see a lot more trans-Asian relationships, and I think if you only hang out with the people that grew up like you with your values and your set of lenses, you don't see the water that you're swimming in in that until you are put with a different kind of fish. Right. When I would have a trans-Asian or even a, let's say, white or black with an Asian, I would make sure to spend time in that because I say, OK, yeah, you both speak perfect English. And I was like, but like, how do you celebrate certain things like funerals, mm-hmm. holidays? Uh, what do you do? Even what do you do with your shoes? Okay. Like my wife and I, we didn't grow up taking our shoes off. Oh yeah. Completely not. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, so when people, when Asians visit our house, they're like, Oh, I'm going to take out. I says, look, look, we have two corgis. They shed everywhere. <laughs> so, so, so please keep them on. <laughs> yeah, we, leave our, we leave our shoes on. You can have hairy socks when you go home, but you know, it's up to you, but it's almost like, reverse engineering and saying, well, for very practical reasons, we're dog people. Mm-hmm. And plus my feet get really cold. And, and so we just rather like, you know, keep our shoes on. I'd say there's that. I think definitely another area of conflict besides culture things is communication. Mm. And if I could paint with a super broad brush here, there are very verbal people and there are very nonverbal people. They're internal processors and they're external processors. Yeah. And to not understand that those are just two different ways of processing, not one is better than the other. That's why I would need both of them in the, in the office, in the room, because I would stop sometimes the things that we're saying as, you know, he's been going on and on for like the last 10 minutes and you, you haven't said a word. Is that because you don't have an opinion? Even in my own relationship with my wife, we've been married for 40 years. And I tell Janessa, our daughter who works with you, I tell her, I'm not kidding. We've probably only had five big arguments in 40 years. Yeah. I said, now, part of this, my therapist helped me understand this, is because I'm conflict averse. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So there are things that I wouldn't bring up because my parents growing up, they fought every single day and just over stupid stuff most of the time. And so I'm like, I'm not doing that. But then my therapist helped me understand. It's like, well, you know, sometimes sharing where you're unhappy or dissatisfied or even angry is a form of intimacy, Ken. And so by you not doing that, she doesn't know this part of you. And she assumes everything is fine. That sounds true, right? So I, you know, I would say very, very much part of that not having very many fights is because I'm conflict averse. I don't like fighting. But the other thing is I think we have good communication. 
So we came to understand very early that I'm an external processor. She's an internal processor. So I'll throw things out as spitballs, like, but they sound like fully formed plants. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm a convincing person. If you can't already figure that out. Okay. <laughs> so even when I, even I'm, I'm you know, playing in a small group when we're playing some kind of game, I'll tell everyone in the group that we don't know each other. I go, don't necessarily believe everything that's going to come out of my mouth in the next 15 minutes, because I'm going to sound absolutely convinced of it, but that's just how I talk. And so we had to learn to do that in our relationship. So I came up with this nomenclature. I call it air, water, and concrete. Because before, when I would just start spouting one of my ideas and maybe have no intention of doing anything with this, I'm just trying, it's like going to a store and trying on clothes you never intend to buy. Right. You just, you're just trying it out. You're, yeah, you're, you're seeing right. how it feels as you say right. it. See, right. where my wife would never do that. If mm. she's going to try something on, she is this close to buying it. Okay. So, you know, I was going like, gee, I saw a rapper wear that once. I'm going to show that, you know? you know, but I have maybe once in a blue moon, I'll buy it. So, I, so what would happen is I would be sharing this idea that she hears as a decision already made. And she starts reacting to it. She starts criticizing it. She's feeling insecure. Where are we going to get the money? Mm. Right. So finally, and I didn't like having to defend an idea that I hadn't even bought into yet. Right. So I had to come up with, and I, I learned to do this with my staff later on, because the same thing would happen, especially I'm the boss. Okay. So I'd say, okay, what I want to share with you is an air idea. So I'm just throwing it out there. I may sound like it's a fully formed idea. I don't know. I'm trying it on for size. So we may do nothing with this. We probably won't do anything with this. So just listen and let's just interact. Then I'll say, oh, well, that air idea, it's now a water idea. Yeah, it's starting to take a little bit more shape. We can kind of touch it, but it's still not a commitment. It's certainly not for me. But then when I go, this is a concrete idea. I'm really serious about it. this. Yeah. Right. Okay. So sometimes I'll forget to say that. And my wife will go, is this an air idea? <laughs> before i invest time and energy you know critiquing yeah. it picking it yeah. apart let me just right. make sure where you are at right. So, so, <laughs> right so i would try to teach couples to do that wow because i said especially if you're married to an extrovert verbal external processor you may misread what their intentions are sometimes we just like hearing ourselves talk right i mean one time when we were early we were living in the church-owned house and I said, you know, I was, I was looking at this Old Testament passage today where Abraham and Sarah, he's the patriarch of, of the Jews. I said, you know, they, they never owned a house. They just lived in a tent. Right away, my wife is like, we're living in this church-owned house. And she's like, we're going to be trailer park people. We're going to have problems. Right, that, right, that's right. It's like, oh, my idea. God. And I'm like, well, where did this come from? You know, I'm, I'm kind of reacting to the kind of theological. You know. So that's a very practical tool that I needed in my relationship that I began to pass on to couples. It, to me, it's got to have legs on it. It's like, oh, I get that. So then, you know, I'd have them go off and they'd work on stuff and I'd come back and they'd say, well, did you try air, water and concrete this week? And let me let me hear if it made a difference, if it was helpful for both, for both parties. And I'd say 99% of the time it's helpful. I love that. I think that is so useful because it's very ground level. I think it's also very realistically implemented. And, you know, I hear a lot about kind of couples always having communication issues. And that, that's an aspect maybe I've never even thought about, right? The fact that when you're processing externally, that there may be different levels of weight that you would attach to it. But I'm wondering, this goes back to kind of your point when you started talking about pastoral counseling versus therapy. 
how would you start kind of recommending or kind of gauging whether a couple should kind of consider going into therapy together? That's a great question. And it's a question that uh, I discussed with fellow pastors because again, I think the allure is, well, this is our 10th time. (laughs) I must be doing really good, right? And then I would always (laughs) echo my wife, go, and you're free. So, so, So I would say, first of all, the pastor needs to understand their built-in inherent limitations. We aren't planning to meet with them for years, right? We don't have that bandwidth, nor do we have the training. And so we're tending to, if we're not careful, undercut therapy, okay? I've had several, more than a handful, a bunch of people who used to see me for pastoral counseling come back after going to see a therapist and complaining that their therapist was just kind of this wall you bounce a ball off of. And they're like, but you, on the other hand, <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's why they're better than me. It's like, you need to have your own statements, feelings, choices bounce back to you. You need to reflect on those things. And that's not what I'm equipped to do. So I would say that us pastors and priests, we need to be careful that we don't discount, that we don't disregard the place and the importance of therapy. For people to take a deep dive, into the darkest spaces with a, you know, I would like to say a very well uh, equipped and experienced guide, that's therapy. That's not pastoral counseling. So when I would start to find myself getting impatient with them or more impatient with the situation, like, you know, I think your determination to get some simple answer out of this, some solution, something to do that will just fix this problem, I think I need to hand you off to someone who's not going to cave as easily as I would <laughs> with, with my training and orientation. I need to give you to someone that I trust that can actually kind of take you away from that desire mm-hmm. and to have a different kind of desire. Like, I want to really know myself. I want to know what makes me tick. It goes back to the, you know, the first thing we do was we pack our baggage. <laughs> so I want to know what's in my bag because I've been dragging it around with me my whole life. And if I'm going to have any kind of freshness and vitality and wellness to myself and my relationships, even my internal self, it's like, I need help going through that bag because some parts of that bag scare the living crap out of me. Mm, Yeah. That's when I would go. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that. I think that is a very self-aware and a very, again, actionable way to kind of decide whether or not someone a couple is kind of someone that you would refer to therapy. I just want to ask for anyone who's listening and might be navigating relationship challenges right now in their life. What is one thing that you would kind of want to share with them? And it could be related to anything, really. I mean, yeah. you've already given a trove. Of <laughs> kind of yeah, I, I would say I just had this conversation with your coworker, our daughter. Okay. <laughs> I said, the world is filled with lots of people. So if you want to be in a relationship, but you're having a hard time finding the right fit, one of the things that I, well, I think both my wife and I have figured out is that you need to sort quicker. Mm. Okay. So I said, if you go to Google and you're going to do a search and I'm looking for, you know, camping equipment. So I type in camping equipment and I'm going to get a hundred thousand million responses but I need to be more specific, like tent pegs, right? Or, you know, portable toilet. 
then it's going to narrow it down. So I said, one of the things that I think is really crucial is to know what your three to five deal breakers are. Mm. So we posed that to our daughter and it was really fascinating conversation because she, she came up with three right away. So I said, so no matter how much you might be attracted to somebody, if they violate not just all, but any one of your deal breakers, you're wasting each other's time, probably money. Yeah. So I would try that on, especially singles. And you know, like one, one person said, uh, it was a woman usually, it's like, well, if this guy mistreats his mother. I said, oh, okay. So I'm not here to tell you what they should be. I'm, I'm here to help you at least identify it. Because I said, with all of these apps now, swipe left, swipe right, right? All, the, all these different kind of things. I don't know that they deal with your deal breakers that, you know, like if someone was a chain smoker uh, or someone was just dishonest, like constantly was getting away with stuff and loving it. If that's one of your deal breakers, then what are you doing still with that person? Yeah, You're only lying to yourself. So that's what I would say. Now, if you're already in the relationship, and this is always tricky, Jack. <laughs> if you're already married, especially, and you're, you've married in spite of violation of some of these deal breakers, then I think we, we start having a conversation about why these are deal breakers. Again, that historic thing, do they still need to be deal breakers? And then probably I'll send them to a therapist. <laughs> I was going to say that way at that yeah. point, you know, let, let, yeah. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, that, that goes deep. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I think this is all so, so, so helpful. It's been amazing getting to have you on the show and talking with you. And if anyone would like to find more, more information and more of your work, where can they find you? Well, definitely you can go to our website, which is www.aapodcast.com. And uh, we're on Instagram and Twitter, and we have a Facebook page, Asian America, the Ken Fong Podcast. It's kind of my new congregation. (laughs) (laughs) We're in 100 countries and, you know, every state but North and South Dakota because they don't care about Asians. They don't have Asians. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this is the kind of conversations we sometimes have depending on the guests. And uh, thank you so very, very much for allowing me to come into the Yellow Chair Collective Space. Uh, I just believe in who you guys are, what you're doing, and I'm just thrilled that you came into existence and the quality of the people, especially the therapists that are being drawn to the work that you guys do. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. (laughs) And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk more soon. That's a plan. 